I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This week on Routine Checkup, we sit down with Ben Seal. He has type 1 diabetes and is a registered dietitian, certified strength and conditioning specialist, and a certified diabetes educator. Let's talk about it. All right, well, we are joined with our new friend Ben today, and we're going to be talking about diabetes. 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 And as diabetes. our good friend, anybody who's in our age group knows that <laughs> reference, right? Like, yeah. it's the guy with the cowboy diabetes. hat and the big mustache. And Wilford. Is that his name? Wilford, Wilford Brimley. Wilford, you know this Wilford, Wilford Brimley? Brimley? Yeah. Okay. I, I, my no, friend met him. Man. No, no shit. My friend no met him before he passed away, and I was it was probably the best moment of their life. There you go. Wow. I was gonna say, uh, speaking of uh, speaking of friends and our friend, our friend uh, Matt Slaney, who has diabetes, Not likes true. to refer to people with diabetes as diabetes. That's and right. I think that that is appropriate. It's yeah. a nice little term. So we're joined by another diabetes, Ben uh, Ben Seal. The T yeah. is not so silent. Almost. <laughs> I like that too. Um, and uh, Ben, you're uh, you you've you live with. OK, so let's get this out of the way. Type one or type two? Shoot. Type one since okay. I was seven. OK, perfect. So so it wasn't your fault. Hey, oh, <laughs> no. hey, that's a joke. Uh, that's a joke about some stigma. Um, we just had the we just had the CEO of uh, Diabetes Canada on our show, which actually in, an episode, episode, in an episode as we record this that was released today. Yeah, and about uh, four four weeks ago now. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and it it was really a lot about uh, the conversation around um, specifically type two diabetes and the stigma around like mm-hmm. it being someone's. You know, like someone just doing it to themselves. Um, so speaking of diabetes, um, Ben, you have type 1 diabetes. You are a registered dietitian. And yes. you actually do quite a bit of work to um, to advocate for and educate around uh, living a healthy lifestyle while living with diabetes. Diabetes. I literally <laughs> accidentally <did> <laughs> It just came out that diabetes. Um, <laughs> Uh, can you uh, take a moment, introduce yourself, give us a little bit of insight into who you are, and uh, and yeah, tell us about like tell us about your life. Hell yeah, I was feel like you gave me so much leeway, I can go on forever and ever. But basically, <laughs> making you know the the short the Spark Notes version, if people even appreciate that anymore. Um, right. So I'm Ben Zeal, ChatGPT version. <laughs> that, I like I like that's so the 2023 right. <laughs> but they'll, they'll, ChatGPT will say it ten times better than I can say it right. That's right yeah, yeah. So. Registered dietitian, uh, certified diabetes educator, and strength coach. And I was diagnosed with type one when I was seven. So it's been a, almost 24 years, which is crazy. And it sucks, quite frankly. And it sucks. And I realized that for a long time, it made my life really, really sucky. And my, you know, sports career was thrown off and all sorts of different things were a lot more of a challenge than they needed to be because of diabetes. But I'd always look for answers and no one had them. So I would, you know, I'd go to the the care team, go to the dietitian, go to the endocrinologist, no answers for how to play sports, how to get strong, how to do things that I actually wanted to do. It was always don't do this, don't play sports, don't do anything fun and, you know, go sit in a corner and draw or something. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want to do that. So I figured, hey, why not become the person that can deliver those answers and dive into the science and help people with that knowledge. And now I'm grateful I'm able to run a practice of, you know, myself and a couple other dietitians who also live with type one helping people on their blood sugar control, helping them drop weight, helping them eat incredible food to break through some of that stigma that y'all, you know, alluded to before mm-hmm. and really just enjoy life to the maximum because, you know, life's too short to not enjoy good food and also life's too short to not have great blood sugar so you can't enjoy it to the max. Uh, I'm curious when, like when you say that, I, because I imagine that being a really difficult thing as a kid who wants to be active, who wants to take part in like 
you know, the, the activities that like your friends are taking part in. And, and if you're athletic and sporty, um, and trying to find those answers, it must be really fucking challenging. Um, but I'm curious because like, as you say that my thought is like, Oh, well, like the reason why they tell you that you just kind of have to go draw in a corner is because probably you can't do those things. When you started to like dig into it, what were some of those answers that you found for yourself that you now share with other people in terms of like how you can take part um, and how kids can be involved in those types of sports and stuff that, you know, the, the experts didn't necessarily have the answers that you wanted to hear when you were a young, young kid. Well, I would say I'm fortunate that things have shifted a little bit and I use the little bit part loosely, but you know, they've gotten a little bit better over the past 20 ish years and there's a little more, Hey, you can go play sports, but then they try to make it the super complex. You must do these 15 things on the checklist to be able to do anything. And I was a little shit who was nine. I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to deal with this. You know, I don't, I want to just run around. I want to play football and baseball and hang out and, you know, see what happens. And my blood sugar would go down and they would just say, Oh, eat a snack. You'll be fine. Oh, you know, mm -hmm. eat a snack before. And it's they either make it overly simple or they make it overly complicated. It doesn't seem like there's an easy middle ground. So a lot of times I tell people, it's just, can you get the foundational pieces? You know, can you break it down into something easy for, you know, if someone's got type one, they want to go on a run. Hey, can you make sure you don't have active insulin? You know, so your number's not going to just bottom out. Can you make sure you eat a snack? Can you make sure that, you know, you're not completely just spur of the moment going and you might think 20 minutes in advance. Do that and you're probably 85% of the time going to be okay. But mm -hmm. people just either make the shit way too complicated or way, way, way too simplistic and overgeneralized. And I feel like that just it drives me nuts and most of the community nuts. I, I never, I, I, cause growing up, I, and I know that there's, I know that there's like differences in type one and type two where my like base level understanding of type one versus type two is type one. You just don't make any insulin. There's no insulin production being made type two. It's kind of like insulin supplementation or your insulin doesn't quite function in the way that you need it to, in order to get the blood out of your, or sorry, get the sugar out of your blood and into your, um, muscle tissues, um, and all, and other tissues. Um, but when I was growing up, I never had this, um, I never had this uh, idea that people with diabetes couldn't, uh, participate in sports because my first, the first thing that I can remember actually like being, knowing somebody who had diabetes was a teammate of mine in mid when I was playing midget hockey, who was like, uh, you know, kind of like on an NHL sort of trajectory was, you know, very, very like inc incredible hockey player uh, was always taking his insulin and, and, and doing his injections and stuff. And so it was kind of just this like, oh, he does that. And I'm not really exactly sure what that is, but I know it's called diabetes and, and seems to not really affect him that much other than like, he's always got Skittles in his bag and that looks fucking awesome. Um, <laughs> and and then, and actually he went on to, he went on to actually have, kind of have like a very similar resume to you where he's like a, he works with, he works with NHL players as like a strength and conditioning coach. Um, but like, I never really had that, um, that idea that people with diabetes were in some way hindered. So like, where does, where does that come from? Like, why are, why are people going, don't like, you know, refrain from this, don't do that you're maybe you're too fragile or you won't be able to manage it well enough in order to like play a high level of sports or something like that. I think, a lot of it I think is just antiquated crap, honestly, like the, the teachings from 1987, for whatever reason, they've locked into that time frame, like the eighties and the nineties, and they still push that today. Mm -hmm. Like even in dietitian school, I was in it I don't know, eight years ago or so. And I remember being in class when they did the type one lecture. And by the third slide, I was raising my hand saying they haven't made that insulin in almost 15 years. And then by the fifth slide, I was just giving the lecture because everything was so outdated. And that was the mid 2010s, right? Mm. And that was supposed to be a good university I was at. So if that's what they're teaching people now, they're pushing all this antiquated bullshit down people's throats. And then if you get the wrong provider who only goes by the book or yeah. they, you know, God forbid, don't dare to think outside of the box, they're going to push. This is scary or you can do it, but here's your 19 point or 18 point checklist or whatever it might be. And then the parents then, you know, they're the information gatherer. They freak out. So that trickles down to the kid and then yeah. they get very hesitant or you get, you know, the occasional defiant little shit like me who says, I'm just going to do it anyway. Screw it. Fuck it. I don't care. And then yeah. 
I'll figure it out. But even then, you know, you fall on your face. I'd rather fall on my face than be told I can't do something. Yeah. It, it reminds me of like BMI, you know, like, like the, yes. like the oh, BMI yes. is a perfect example of something that is that even still to this day, healthcare professionals will look at and go, Oh, you have a BMI of 23. That's, that's overweight. You're overweight. And it's like, okay, but are you taking into consideration muscle mass? Like over, like it's, it, it's just like an entire, it, it but but for some fucking reason, like a doctor who, you know, maybe a doctor who's been in the practice for several decades, you know, uh, a doctor in their 60s, they they just they don't look at it that way. Um, I mean, like, you know, you speaking about dietitians, it, it really reminds me of um, the dietitian that I have at the cystic fibrosis clinic. She's, you know, my my dietitian now. Um she would be, I would say we're probably close in age. Maybe she, she might be like three, four, four years older than me, five years older than me. Um, but the dietitian that I had prior to her before she came in was much older. And like, I just remember even being like, you know, a, a bit younger than I am now speaking to this older dietitian, talking about things like, um, you know, ideal ways to like get, uh, get calcium in my diet for, you know, because people with CF have like a, uh, their, their bone density is something you got to worry about lower bone density, yada, yada, whatever. So like, how do I get good calcium? And I was wondering, like, I was like, how do I get uh, good calcium? Like j- outside of milk, like just j- outside of just milk. And she was like, no Ooh. other way. I mean, basically, yeah, that's what she said. She was like, eh, that really, it's like, it's just milk. You just gotta like, you just gotta take milk and you gotta have like your vitamin D. And it's like, like, you can put the milk in your mashed potatoes too. And as long as you're eating mashed potatoes and and chicken, you're good. And so again, it comes back to that sort of like old school mentality of like, well, this is what I was taught. I was taught this fucking, you know, 35 years ago. And there's there, I I haven't stayed up to date with the fucking literature. But then like what I hear you saying is that, even within the schooling system, like in, in recent history, it had yeah. like, it hasn't really changed that much. Um, which, which hopefully we'll, we'll like, we'll see a big change in that in the coming, you know, I feel like there's kind of like a, maybe it's, maybe it's a, uh, uh, an echo chamber thing, but I feel like with like the rise of, of interest in well being through people like, you know, your fucking all-time hero Peter God, Tia, God or like or like Andrew Huberman to, is is an even better example like yep. um I think that we're probably going to start to hopefully see a shift in the ways that younger healthcare providers like yourself like come into the scene and and have this like more rich uh up-to-date literature in front of them um but but I am curious like just to take it back to your own personal story when yeah. you were when you were 7 years old you know you got this di- diabetes um uh, um, diagnosis. diagnosis. Thank you. Um, what, what did that look like for you? And, and what kinds of like, what kinds of things were you being told and what mm-hmm. kinds of things were you pushing back against saying like, well, fuck it, I'm going to do it anyway. Like what were the things that they were saying? Like, well, you can't do this or you can't do that. And why? So I was already an angry kid, right? I'm just straight up. Like we had just moved to uh, yeah, to Wisconsin from Michigan. I didn't want to move to Wisconsin. Wisconsin sucks. If you're from there, I'm sorry, but <laughs> you know, I, I I personally think Wisconsin sucks. And so we moved there. I didn't want to go. A month later, I get diagnosed. So my focus is making new friends. Who am I going to hang out with? And now it's I'm slapped with. Congrats, you're going to measure all your carbs out. You're going to take these injections. I don't want to do any of this, but I figure, well, I kind of have to. So I tried to make it a game, right? I tried to gamify it and say, okay. You know, I'm going to get exactly this number of carbs per meal. They tell me 60 at breakfast. I'm going to get exactly 60. So if I'm at 57, I'm scrounging through the kitchen trying to find that last three. And whether I did a good job with that or not, I don't know. doesn't matter. But (laughs) after a while, it got old. You know, you're seven, you're eight years old. I remember vividly about nine months in, I was like, fuck this. I'm sick of pricking my finger. I'm sick of my number going up and down. I'm sick of everybody else eating the birthday treat. And I'm just sitting here watching them being told, well, your mom didn't say how much to dose for it. So we don't know what to give you. So tough shit, kid, watch everybody. Like I was just over it. And then I realized I'm like, I have to do this the rest of my life. So I better, you know, suck it up and deal with it. And I I started to then push back a little more. How can I get a little more freedom? How can I do more of the activity? I thankfully got a better doctor. So the person I was with was a potato, you know, who didn't know shit. And so I (laughs) literally had, you know, complete 
restriction on everything. So I started to get some of that restriction taken away. And I really, really, really tried to forge more of an independent path. And that's what I think really helped me. Because if mm -hmm. I was told to be restricted for years and years, that's how some of these people that they come to our practice, like I'm grateful they come to us because we can help, you know, show them you don't have to live in this box that you've been put in for the last two or three decades. But mm -hmm. some of them are scared of their own shadow because mm -hmm. they've been told repeatedly, you can't eat this food. You can't have a dessert. You can't have the plate of pasta, you know, go have some broccoli and some chicken and some, you know, brown rice and do the the bro life, which is fine, but you can't live like that forever. You're going to go crazy. Did you well, ever, did you ever like, like, I'm thinking back to when I was a kid and having to deal with like manage my, my illness. And like when I was in high school, I mean, the last thing I should have been doing was smoking a fucking joint uh, for my lungs. Right. Like very not okay for a, a, a person living with cystic fibrosis, but like, Everybody else is smoking joints and that shit looked fun. So I was like, fucking smoke me up. Let's like hot box this bathroom. Let's fucking go down to the gazebo and smoke a joint and play some hacky sack. Like, like I, I did that shit to a, to the detriment of my own health. Did you, did you ever find yourself at a place like that where like, like not like, like resisting and pushing back in a way that was actually unhealthy for you um, to a point where like, maybe you go into a state of ketosis or something like that. Ooh. Um, I mean, I, I was, I have to say, like, I was probably a pretty straight edge kid. Like mm. I was kind of like, I'm going to try to do this and at least make my best effort because I'd feel so shitty if my blood sugar did go crazy. Right. And then also you get this really distorted relationship with food. Like if you notice, mm. Hey, I ate this thing and my blood sugar went to 395. I don't feel very good. I don't want to have to deal with this. And so that mm. was enough for me to just not live in fear, but live in enough of a consideration of, I don't want to feel like shit. But I will say when I went off to college that first year, there was all sorts of food and all sorts of excitement. And I was into fitness enough then that I didn't want to gain, you know, 90 pounds like some people. But at the same time, I also was like, I want to try some of this shit that I've never had before. This might be interesting. And let's see how this does. And then as I started getting a better understanding of nutrition, then it became, I just want to do this just to show people that you can do this and be right. okay. And now I mean, on my social all the time, I will order shit at restaurants for the sake of I'm going to order this massive meal or this crazy yeah. dish that I shouldn't be eating just for the purposes of let me break it down and show you how you can eat it. And right. then I'm going to eat it and show you my blood sugars are great. But like that so, uh, reel that you recently posted of yourself um, butt chugging an entire quart of um, <laughs> uh, um, what was it? That, that pink liquor. Oh um, yeah, yeah. The, put, the, put, yeah. The, puss, the sour puss. That's it. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's crazy. Yeah, dude. That, yeah, that yeah, was yeah, wild. Yeah. That was some wild shit. <laughs> I feel like that. I feel like. I feel like you. Yeah. I feel like you just kind of y'all are something. You didn't miss a, you missed a couple. I feel like you missed a couple <laughs> joke beats there, Jer. Um, I, uh, I um, just to be clear, Ben did not do that. Oh, yeah. oh, 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 oh! It shit. reminds me, you know, like what you said there. It's actually a different Instagram account. Like your, your, uh, your. Uh, your relationship with like with that with food going oh after a while or at some point you just kind of like develop the relationship where you're like I don't like it's not worth it to like to like do this thing that's going to just like skyrocket my blood sugars because I know it makes me feel shitty actually reminds me a lot of like how I have felt about have how how I have learned to feel about alcohol over the last few years like w went fucking crazy in my 20s drinking like a fucking fish and like just developed this 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 relationship where I'm just like one or two is like all I can do anymore because like, I just know that that feeling is like not somewhere I want to go. Um, but did, that character is not someone you want to be because when that, Taylor has more than two beers, there's no like, there's no stopping him from going down that hill. Yeah. yeah and it's a, uh, it's a snowball effect. He goes from being Taylor McGillivray to being T Mac. Yeah. And that it's character. It's very mean oh, and very shit. naked. Not, it's an it's alter ego. Very, very, very mean, a, very naked, very quick. It's an alter yeah. ego. T Mac hasn't been around it's in a while. It's known to cause um, uh, disruptions. Before <laughs> we, uh, there's many disruptions. Before we go any further down, down, down the path here, just because like diabetes is diabetes. so, so prevalent. Um, there was so in there in our conversation that I mentioned earlier um, with the the CEO of Diabetes Canada, um, it was 11 million 
11 million people in Canada of a population of like 38 million. I think it was 12 million. Jeez. I think it was, it was almost, almost, almost 12 million. Yeah. Almost 12. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, is, that either has diabetes. I think the diabetes number was like six or eight. And then there was, mm. um, and then there, and then but the 12, 11 or 12 million total of diabetes and or pre-diabetes, mm. um, yep. which is a massive number, massive percentage of our population. I know that the U.S. Is a, has a, a gigantic number of the population that is either diabetic or pre-diabetic. Um, and so because the term is so common, I don't think there's anybody out there that's scratching their head in terms of, in saying, I've never heard the word diabetes before, but I think that a ton of people, including myself that have like talked about it at length on a number of occasions, I still kind of find myself sometimes straining to remember exactly the ins and outs of like what, what's going on inside the body of somebody with diabetes. And obviously there's differences with type one and type two. You obviously have right. type one. I'm assuming you're as a dietitian, especially you're probably quite familiar ex- with exactly what's happening in type two as well. Can you give yes. us like the 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 like lay scientific understanding of what's going on with in, in the body of somebody with diabetes? Yeah, I was going to say I, the numbers you gave for Canada, I think are it's pretty close to the U.S. The U.S. has like 30 million ish, I think, with diabetes in general, of which five to 10 percent is type one. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the majority of, of people have type two, which is why the confusion is so common. But basically, type one, the pancreas, like you alluded to before, pancreas is making insulin. Pancreas just doesn't show up for work one day and just says, you know, fuck you, I'm not showing up anymore. And you're done. You have to get insulin from somewhere else. It's just not going to work. And if you don't, you're not going to be able to use any of the glucose in your body and eventually you'll wither away and die. So that's the the easiest way to see it. But basically, you know, the, there's a um, what's an autoimmune attack on the pancreas, the beta cells specifically, they're not usable, no more insulin, game over. Oh, okay. Type two is a little different. Type two is pretty much your body, whether you're, you know, overweight, you're overweight, or you know, there's something else going on with it, it's not able to meet the demand. The pancreas cannot meet the demand of the insulin in the body. Mm-hmm. So it's trying and trying and trying, working overtime to be able to do it. So it's doing its mm-hmm. job and it's busting its ass but eventually it starts to wear down. So it can't meet that demand still. And it starts to become less and less effective. And eventually it just completely burns out. And then those people end up on insulin as well because mm-hmm. their pancreas just doesn't work anymore. So when people say, oh, I reversed my diabetes, they caught it in the earlier stage where it was still working. It was just working too hard. So because of their lifestyle changes, their weight loss, whatever it might've been, then they were able to, you know, backtrack on it oh the pancreas can now meet the demand of the body the diabetes went away and that was the end of it mm-hmm. so what is the so i guess i mean whenever i think of whenever i think of uh like lifestyle things that can improve the condition of somebody with diabetes um or in in certain cases depending on like where you are on that path with diabetes could even like reverse reverse you and, and bring and and, and kind of correct course. Um, I'm usually thinking about that, or I guess I'm always subconsciously at least thinking about that in terms of somebody with type two, how does, uh, how does stuff like nutrition and exercise affect somebody living with type one where that is, you know, much more often, you know, like a a case of, uh, uh, being, uh, either born with it or juvenile in the sense that you are, you're a child when it, when it happens. Um, how do those two things work with somebody with type one diabetes? Well, and it's funny you say that too, because now these days, it's more and more prevalent 20s, 30s, 40s, getting diagnosed with late onset type one. Right. Yes. So actually, a- the, the in our conversation that came up the other day, which was they were, which she, uh, Laura Siren, she said, we have no idea why that's happening. It's unbelievable. Like even growing up, you know, everyone's like, oh, you must have been a kid or something happened. And now it's like, I met someone the other day who was 59 when they were diagnosed. I'm like, what is, what the hell? But anyways, exercise and nutrition, I like to say, you know, along with blood sugar management is the holy trinity of managing type one. That's what we call it, at least, you know, in our practice, because the exercise, the nutrition dictates 80% of your blood sugar, right? What you're, you know, what you're putting in your body, the carbs, the protein, the fat, they're all going to have their own unique impact on blood sugar. So depending on the type of carb you eat, the type of food you eat, how fast is your number going to rise? How much insulin do you have to be able to, you know, give to manage it? And then do you have to change up your strategy of, you know, how you're dealing with your insulin to be able to handle a certain particular meal? Like if you said, hey, here's, you know, I don't know, here's a donut versus 
here's a plate of brown rice. You're going to handle that two very different ways because of the impact on your blood sugar. Mm -hmm. But for exercise, it's similar to type two, right? And the fact that it's going to help take up some of that glucose that's floating around in the blood Mm -hmm. and it will help boost your insulin sensitivity up. And Mm -hmm. if you're lifting, that will also at baseline make you more insulin sensitive. So the insulin that you're putting into your body works better. So that's why I always tell people, if you're able to exercise consistent, you're just going to make your insulin's job easier. And then Mm. your control is going to be better just by virtue of that alone, let alone, you know, weight loss or anything like that. The more muscle you've got, the more insulin sensitive you are, the better your insulin works, the easier it is to manage your numbers. And is it, is it specific? Is the exercise like in, in your, from what you know, like, is there, is there any research on like a a specific type of exercise that's better than another, you know, like like cardio-based exercise or, you know, or like, like weightlifting or, you know, uh, something like, like high impact, low impact or anything like that. Or is it just running on all fours? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, Running on all fours in your neighbor's yard. (laughs) Um, any, any kind of like difference in variation there? They typically, I feel like, especially growing up, the focus (laughs) is always on cardio. Then Mm -hmm. thankfully people finally start shifting more towards, you know, Oh, lifting might be a good idea. I, I, to me, I think the best is a combination of the two. Sure. I think if you were to, you know, balance like 60, 40, one or the other, whichever you happen to like more, yeah. you should be fine. But is there necessarily something that's more beneficial from one or the other? I'd say resistance. I would give it the slight nudge, like, you know, lifting just because you have the ability to add more lean muscle tissue. That's going to help you with the insulin sensitivity mm. long-term, not just in the short term. Cause if you go on a, you go on a run, right? You stop. The moment you stop for the next 24 hours, maybe up to, you know, 72 hours, you might get a little boost in insulin sensitivity. But if you tell me that you've just added five pounds of muscle over the past two months or three months or however long it is, that's going to stick with you for the long term in addition to what you're getting just in that short term. So to me, lifting gets the nod. And Uh, and just one more time, what was the the holy trinity of of uh, of uh, nutrition, exercise, and then any of like the actual blood sugar management, insulin management, like medication, right. basically. Got it. I, I don't know. I named it that for my practice. People seem to like it. So yeah, uh, I like that. Ben, you, uh, when Amen. you were, when you were sort of describing, um, exercise and like the idea of the, of insulin, um, kind of like, uh, um, I can't remember how you phrased it, but, uh, like allowing insulin to kind of have like an easier go, like by exercise, making it um, easier for your insulin to do its job. Um, I'm curious if you know, this is something that I read about the other day in a book that I'm reading <clears throat> about um, uh, non-insulin mediated glucose, uh, non-mediated, non-insulin mediated glucose uptake, I think it was called. Yeah. Um, yeah. can you, and, and, and the, the way that I understood it was that it was essentially that exercise, um, even something really simple, like brisk walking could increase this function where you don't need insulin to transport glucose across the membrane. Um, so you kind of take out the middleman of insulin, um, which allows somebody, which can allow somebody with diabetes to need less insulin uh, to, to, to take less insulin, um, in like via injections. What do you, what's your, what's your, um, knowledge around that? If, if, if any, how nerdy do you want me to get dude? I mean, personally nerdy, super. <laughs> so, so technically, and again, this is my, you know, this is the grad school biochem speaking, but with what you're describing, basically, you know, there's these different, I don't know, these, these calcium channels, Ultimately, calcium will bind. I think there's four of them. And once it binds, it takes the GLUT4 receptor so that, you know, the glucose receptor that insulin will bring to the surface as well. It's a basically a backdoor mechanism to bring that same GLUT4 receptor to the surface when you're walking or when you're lifting or whatever. And then any of that glucose can be taken into the cell the same way that you could if you just said, hey, I'm going to dial up three units of insulin and take it right now. Mm. So it's basically just a backdoor thanks to this, you know, calcium mediated pathway that's all, you know, phosphorylations and all sorts of other shit. But basically, it's just another way to do the same thing. And that's why a lot of people will say, Oh, I'm going to go eat my meal. And then, you know, 20 minutes after I'm going to go take a little walk to make sure my, you know, my insulin works a little better, my blood sugar doesn't go as high, and it works. The biggest thing I caution people with is it's not always practical. Yeah. So you're like, Oh, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to eat the snack. And then I'm going to go on a walk to make sure my number doesn't go as high. Well, what if you're sitting on an airplane, and you can't, you know, you just have to have another ability, another way to 
facilitate it if you can't immediately go, you know, be reliant on that activity. And so I even tell people if their blood sugar is shooting up really, really high, sure, activity is great, but make sure it's not the only thing you're reliant on because otherwise you're going to shoot yourself in the foot when it's not available. Are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice? It's time to dig deeper and listen to America Dissected from Crooked Media, the podcast that's cutting into the science, culture, and policy that shapes our health. From doctors fighting for their rights to the surprising truths about sunscreen, America Dissected dives deep into the state of health. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of America Dissected, available on all major podcast platforms. What is what is the ceiling to that function to that mechanism? Obviously, there's got to be like a there's got to be because I mean, I mean, imagining that time and uh, (laughs) energy are not a are are not a uh, are are of no consequence. There's Mm -hmm. there must be a ceiling to where you're. It's not like you can transport. I'm assuming all of your glucose using that function using that mechanism. Insulin has to play a role. Typically, it's it, it can go pretty far. All I can tell you is from personal experience and seeing it with other people. Like I've seen people run marathons and they're barely taking any insulin the entire time. At some point, though, to your point, there's gonna be this line where your body, if because the people, oh, I'm cured. My number's been 85 the whole day for the last you know 48 hours. At some point, their number's gonna start to just rise by virtue of not having insulin because there needs to be something to offset the liver dumping glucose constantly. Okay. And so like I a good example I can give is I played, you know, high school volleyball up until I don't know, 11th, 12th grade, whatever. But there would be the tryout week, you know, that week of hell where you're doing conditioning, you're playing games like you, you know, eat lunch, which the unwritten rule is you're playing, you know, scrimmages for two hours. So you're going for eight hours straight. And there were times where I would eat, I don't know, 100 carbs at lunch, I would drink probably 200 carbs of Gatorade, no insulin for nine hours, and I'd walk out of there and my blood sugar would be perfect. Yeah, but I right. know wow. that because it's there's so much of that you know non-insulin mediated uptake but then at some point if i stayed with no insulin even if you've burned through all your glycogen which that's you know another big assumption assuming you've done a shitload of activity then you're gonna have to think about okay burn through the glycogen it'll keep my number okay for a while but eventually i don't say the luck's gonna run out but the luck will run Mm -hmm. out i couldn't give you a specific at 18 hours this is what's gonna happen because it's just dependent on what you do well that's way that's way more than i thought like i kind of thought the ceiling would be quite low like it would like this can you know this kind of has this Mm -hmm. this little effect and you can kind of use utilize it to your advantage but i wasn't aware that you could take it so far i wouldn't necessarily advocate for being like zero all the time like i'll tell people like bring it real low. Like maybe, you know, you're running and you know, you're going to tank, maybe have, you know, and I'm for assuming someone's on insulin pump, you know, maybe they're at 0.1 units per hour. So it's just a teeny little amount because zero is where things start to get a little wonky and you can get away with it. But at some point, you know, it'll come back to bite you in the ass. It's it's so crazy because like the precision of this um, and the precision of like the management reminds me of like the, the sort of like job of managing this disease too, which um, mm-hmm. in our conversation with, with Laura from Diabetes Canada, we, we talked a lot about the stigma um, surrounding diabetes in the sense that a lot of people think that because insulin exists and we're able to manage, you know, people with diabetes insulin uptake or manage, manage insulin as needed, that it's basically cured. Like a, a lot of the thoughts around it are like, hey, well, you know, like there's a solution to this. So like, it's not, it's not that bad. But what people don't realize is the amount of work that goes into managing this condition and like the toll that that can take on the person who's going through it. And, you know, not just them, but, but their family too. Um, I'm curious, Ben, from, from your perspective, like what was the conversation with your family like as you went through this? Because obviously it sounds like when you were, were a young kid at, at age seven and sort of being told that you can't do these things and you had this like sort of defiant way of like, of like managing that and sort of negotiating that. Um, I'm guessing that that also ended up resulting in some, some sort of conversations with your family about your approach to managing your disease. What was that all about? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate that 
they had some background on diabetes because my my dad's medical. So at least he was able to, you know, catch it before I ended up in the ICU, like a lot of people. But at the same time, that defiance did not always go well. There was a lot of head like butting of heads where I'd want to, you know, I want to have this food. And they'd be like, eh, I don't know if you really should, or you know, do you know what's going on? Do you know what how much you're gonna dose? Or they would just give me a number and say, you know what, just try it. Let's see what happens. So there was some, you know fuck it. We don't care. Let's see what happens. Let's, you know, and you'll deal with it after and we'll deal with the after effects. Or there was, uh, I don't really, at some point, you know, they kind of just not gave up, but you know, mm. metaphorically gave up. How, how much do you feel like you, like you, because it sounds almost like you had a lot of autonomy in your decision-making at that age to like, sort of like make those decisions and, and like be your own advocate. Do you feel like that, like that played a big part in who you are today? Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's a great question. I, cause I think I like, I'm trying yeah. Three months after I was diagnosed, I was already, you know, making lunches, counting carbs up. I liked math. I thought it was kind of fun with, you know, this, Oh, let's make this into a puzzle. Let's make it a game. Ooh. But then, like I said, it got old, but I still, you know, had to do it. And so they were like, you're eight, you're making your lunch. Congrats. You know, you'll figure it out. And I think that I didn't like it at the time, but it probably did help me in the grand scheme because I started to know, okay, this food has this many carbs, this food has that many carbs. And I didn't have to feel like I was fitting into the, some of the even, you know, more antiquated boxes of, oh, you have to have everything in units of 15, everything's 15 carbs is a, the proper number of carbs to have, you know, so it'd be 60 at breakfast and 75 at lunch. Like I was told that initially, but I was like, I'm gonna eat 52 and just say, fuck this. I, mm -hmm. I feel like eating 52. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'd, I'd push those little limits and my family would support me on that. But the bigger stuff, they were very much like, you know, Hey, let's talk about it. Let's figure it out. And I think really once, like I said, once I went to college, things really went a little more haywire because that's where I figured I'd be more exploratory. As when, as someone who became a registered dietitian, like, do you think that was a direct result of your of your youth being like, you know, fully inundated with diet and and like and and thinking about the things that you're putting in? Because it could go both ways, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah you could like, hate it. Oh, yeah. The last thing I want to be is a dietitian. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and that's and that's what I feel like. It's it's you're either on one end or the other. It's never yeah. like a oh, it's okay. Like it's either like I love this shit or I fucking hate this shit. Right. It was either I, become I a dietitian it, or or starting OnlyFans. Like it was it was one of those two. <laughs> I don't. I feel like you OnlyFans only wasn't even around back then. <laughs> Damn. I, I am I am curious um about your so like where. I kind of want to get into like the way that you treated yourself like a, like a science experiment. Um, mm -hmm. And, and like, be, before we get into that, maybe, maybe we can like go through how currently today you live your day-to-day -day life managing yeah. your diabetes versus like what the, the, you know, nutritional advice for, for people with diabetes is kind of in the literature, what, what most people are probably hearing from like their healthcare providers. What I'm supposed to say versus what I actually say. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Well, I, I hate to I hate to put it like that. I just remember vividly being in grad school, you know, studying nutrition, doing all this. I actually had started doing a PhD prior to becoming a dietitian that was all type one and it was all nutrition. And I was at the time thinking it would be great. And then I'm like, this is too much sitting in front of a computer with numbers. No, thank you. But I went to this endocrinologist and I remember her telling me, uh, based on your BMI comment, also, by the way, it's like, you know, you probably should drop a little bit of weight, not paying attention to body comp at all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you should just have, you know, lean meats and green vegetables and, you know, make sure you limit your carbs to a very small amount. And I'm like, lady, why the fuck are you telling me this? Like, I should be telling you how to be eating right now. Like, stop. <laughs> so that's and the stuff, you know, I'm supposed to say is, you know, OK, are you counting your carbs, which I agree with 100 percent. But then it's, you know, OK, are you having the, you know, the fibrous carbs, at least half of your grains? you know, the brown rice versus the white rice? Are you getting the veggies at every single meal? Like, and a lot of these principles are fine, but they take it so strictly of like the, oh, well, the, the dessert stuff, you should never have that, you know, or very rarely, or get the sugar-free option instead. That'll be a great substitute. And that's never, I don't recommend anybody ever having anything sugar-free unless you want to live on the toilet. So <laughs> like it's, and that was personal experience from well-meaning people <laughs> in my childhood. Hey, Ben, here's some sugar-free candy. It'll be a great substitute. Well, everyone eats the real candy bar and it'd be Ooh. like, gurgle, gurgle, fuck my life in like you know, two hours. <laughs> but, you know, but I, I feel like a lot of it is, it's the very generic stuff you hear about, you know, eating healthy is for diabetes. And, they'll, and a lot of the times they'll still give 30 carbs at snack, you know, 45 at breakfast, 60 at lunch, 75 at dinner because that's the same shit that they talked about, you know, 35 years ago. And that's, that's the stuff where I tell people is, you know, get rid of that, you know, don't worry about that. 
eat the amount that you want to eat and make sure you have, you know, an insulin to carb ratio that actually works for you instead of constantly guessing. Because also you'll see doctors, they'll be like, take four units at every meal. They're not paying attention to what people are eating. If you're eating a bunch of eggs, you may not need four units. But if you're eating, you know, a whole sheet of graham crackers and a bunch of, you know, other shit, you probably with carbs, you probably need to have a lot more than four units. And so just that type of very, very, very generic advice drives me up a fucking wall. I mean, especially so, like if if you just go out and do like, obviously everybody is individual and people love all sorts of different things. Like me as a cyclist, if I'm going out and I want to ride my bike for three hours intensely, the amount of carbs that I need to keep that engine going is right. enormous. And, and, right. and it's like, well, if, I mean, if you're telling me if, if I was following the, if I was diabetic and I was following the advice, then the, it would be like, oh, so if that is what I need to do, what you're telling me, then this thing that I want to do is impossible. Like that's yeah. the answer to that question. Ooh. Ooh. Subconsciously. Yeah. Cause they're, right. they're just going to say, and the, the shitty part too, and this is just, you know, my little soapbox, I'll get out of the way. I was seven being told, you know, 60 grams at breakfast, 75 lunch, 75 dinner. There are people that come to me now that are like 37 that are getting told the exact same numbers. I'm like, why are you giving a seven-year-old and a 37-year-old the exact mm. same information? Because clearly their needs are 100% different. Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't factor in activity. It doesn't factor in protein. And, and the, the real focus on, you know, nutrition from a dietitian from the literature these days is just carbs. You know, what are you doing for carbs? Are your carbs fibrous? Are your carbs good? Carbs are the only thing that will impact your blood sugar. And to that, I say absolutely fucking not because protein and fat can have just as much of an impact on your blood sugar as carbs. And nobody mm. talks about it and it drives me fucking crazy. And that's probably the reason why 90% of the people come to us is how can I eat this crazy stuff that has lots of fat that's going to kick me in the ass later, but I want to have it with good blood sugars and there's ways to do it. It's just nobody wants to talk about it because the research is lagging 10 to 15 years behind. Can you explain mm. that? Because I have never heard that before. I don't. So like you're saying that and I'm going, oh, I'm one of those people. Well, and, and I'm not, I'm not hating at all by any stretch no, of imagination. No, no, no one talks about it. Totally. I'm going, man, I've never, I've like, I've never, I, I have, I'm in terms of diabetes, it's always been for me, sugar, insulin or yeah. carbs, insulin. Like yeah. that's the, that's the thing. So how does, how do things like fats and proteins impact that? So protein mainly stabilizes stuff. So a lot of times people say, oh, your blood sugar is low. You know, if you're, let's say your glycogen is, you know, running, running on the lower side and your blood sugar is 55 and you take, you know, three glucose tabs, you say, oh, that'll, that'll be good. You might go up. And then because, you know, your body's like, shit, that's all I had. I burned through it. You're gonna go right back down. Protein a lot of times can help just stabilize it out. So at least it'll be a little more steady because it ultimately slows digestion down just a little bit. And it can convert into a small amount of glucose, depending on, you know, how much you have. The fat is what really, really, really messes with people because that will slow your digestion down a ton. And depending mm -hmm. on how much you eat, let's say you eat a gigantic plate of nachos, you have a giant ice cream sundae or whatever it might be, right? You have this massive amount of carbs or pizza is the classic diabetes one. Oh, I can't dose for pizza. And then you get these, you get these people, you know, dietitians or these doctors saying, oh, you know, dose half of your carbs up front for pizza and put the other 50% over an hour and a half, because that'll help make sure that it kicks in with the fat. The first problem is the fat doesn't kick in for like three or four hours. So what they're doing is telling that person to send their blood sugar to the fucking moon. And then when the fat hits them, their blood sugar is already high. So they're just going to sit there. Mm. So fat slows it down so much. And then it just starts to, you know, basically I, I jokingly say, you know, it holds some of the carbs in escrow and just drips them out. And there's <laughs> research that there's, there's research that shows that people who have like a high fat, high carb meal, they had two groups. They had one group with, you know, 10 fat and 50 carbs and one group with 50 fat and 50 carbs. The group with high fat had on average about 50% more insulin required to be able to have the same meal to keep blood sugar in range. So people aren't even thinking about that. They're like, oh, I can take the same amount of insulin. No, you need to take more and uh -huh. you have to take it later on because you'll see your number. It'll go up. It'll go down. You're like, oh, I'm doing great. You'll go to sleep. You know, you had a big dinner. You're 125 and you wake up, you're 296. You're like, what the fuck just happened? Well, that's the fat that just happened. Mm -hmm. can, wow. can, you, can you explain, Ben, like, because I'm starting to get an understanding of like, of like what you can do to manage um, your your glucose levels, but but what I really don't understand is like what goes wrong when you don't like when you're when you're saying that people um, you know aren't doing a good job of there make a mistake and like mess up or or they you know follow this bad advice and like what are the repercussions of of doing that? So 
in the in the short term, so let's say you know you let's just say you didn't dose for a high fat meal and you wake up and your blood sugar is super high. In the short term, I mean you're you're gonna feel really lousy. You're gonna get dehydrated. You're gonna you know you're probably not gonna be able to think super straight. Your concentration sucks. You're sleepy. You don't really want to do anything. You're lethargic, right? But over the long term, little teeny you know the blood flow doesn't go quite as well. So you know to the the hands to the feet to you know the other the dick right if you're a dude you know mm -hmm. so that can start to get affected in a not so friendly way you know your kidneys the little blood vessels there start to have issues your eyes that starts to have issues so mm -hmm. people start to notice you know if your blood sugars remain high over a really long period of time or you're constantly spiking up and shooting down and doing a bunch of that you'll start to see damages you know eyes kidneys and then your limbs so the neuropathy the retinopathy and the mm -hmm. nephropathy and that's the shit that gets scary. And then, you know, of course, ED is a huge thing for dudes with type one, because mm. over time, the longer you have it, you know, the blood flow is going to get worse. And, mm. you know, the dick doesn't work as good. Mm. What like what kinds of I know that when. I can imagine for maybe someone who and maybe not, per, maybe not, not so much someone with type one, but perhaps um, probably more so leaning towards someone with like type two, but the mm. the. The notion of managing a disease that is so heavily tied to what you're taking in and, and what you're like processing in your body, I feel like could really easily like overwhelm a lot of people that have diabetes. And so, you know, cause there's some people out there that are like that fucking like nerding out on this shit. And it's like, yeah, of course I want to, I want to think about what I'm putting in and, and how I'm utilizing that. And, but then there's some people that are like, man, fuck, I don't fucking want to think about what it is that I have to like do. Like, I don't want to count my fucking macros like every day and, and think about this and that. So like for the people that are that are not inclined to like to to kind of process this language of mm. of how it is that they are tr managing their disease with uh, with, you know, uh, carbs and fat and protein and, and calories and exercise. What are the things that you say to those patients or those people to kind of help them? I don't know, like help them think about these things in a less overwhelming way, if that makes sense. Oh, totally. Cause, cause to your point, like I like nerding out on this stuff and a lot of people, you know, that we work with love nerding out on this stuff. But then you get the people that are like, I just want to feel good. I don't give a shit. Just tell yeah. me what I need to know to feel good. Yeah. And with that, there still has to be an element of, you know, something numbers based, right? Because if you're going to say, well, I want my numbers to be good, but I don't want to think about anything in the in numbers. It's just not going to work out very well. So we might, you know, simplify it down to, okay, can you, you know, focus on taking your insulin at the proper time interval? You know, can you take mm. it ahead of the meal? Can mm. you just count up the carbs and know, hey, this meal seems like it has a lot of fat, you know, let me just think about a few hours later. So we'll try to basically extract like the big heavy hitting pieces and mm. tell them to do the focus on those things instead of, you know, the constant, hey, you could do this, 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 and this, and this, but instead let's take just, you know, the big heavy hitters, get it into your life. So it's integrated. And now you're not thinking about it. It's just kind of happening. Ooh. But you can't really just avoid because I feel like a lot of times like high school kids will go through it where they'll be like, I don't want to deal with this or college because I don't want to deal with this shit. I have too much other stuff going on. Totally. And then they run around with their blood sugar super high because they're not paying attention or they're just like, I'm going to take five at every meal. There was a kid I met at a conference when I was in college and he hadn't tested his blood sugar in three and a half months. I'm like, how the fuck are you alive right now? Holy shit. He pulled out his meter. Yeah. yeah, it was like it, it was like I think it was June 1st or June 2nd of whatever year it was. <laughs> It was like February something. I'm like, how are you alive? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. I mean, how much easier to that question, um, to that question that Jer asked, how much easier has the prevalence and relative affordability, I guess it depends on your situation, uh, for continuous glucose monitors um, being, being more widespread. And like, obviously that's a game changer. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. I see, I, 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 I actually came to know about them first because uh, a lot of pro cyclists started using them to monitor their blood sugars in races so they could know where, like when to, when they should be taking carbs on board. Um, and then, and I was, and I think I, I saw it and I went, wow, diabetics should have that. <laughs> <Just> little, <laughs> little did I know, 
That was the intended use. Um, so, like, how is that? And then that? there was the great shortage of, uh, of blood glucose monitors, well, the great butt dart shortage. You see, I've ended up banning them in competition. But anyway, um, like, I'm sure that must have made it a lot easier for people, especially people who are like, oh, my God, this is such a headache. Uh, it must oh. have made it a lot simpler for them. It was life changing. Even in my own experience, I'd had it for 14 years before I got a CGM and I got that. And I'm like, how the hell did I live without this for 14 years? Cause you're not having to guess about, you know, you'll get one data point and another, you don't know if you just went up and came down or if you went down and went up or you just stayed flat the whole time. Like you don't know. Yeah. And it just, it makes, it takes a lot of the guessing out of it. But again, you can have the data, but if you don't use it, it doesn't yes. matter. Right. It must, That's the hardest part. There must be some, um, sort of like, like, I don't know if silver lining is the right word to describe it, but, but I think so. So I have, um, ADHD and like have, have gone through periods of like depression in my life and, and have felt anxious at times. And oftentimes when I like feel those ways and I, and I look backwards, I can, I can look at like, you know, bad sleeping habits and like, and like a lack of healthy eating and a lack of exercise and sort of like, like pinpoint these things that like amplify those bad periods of times in my life. And I don't oftentimes, I mean, because I don't live with, you know, something like diabetes, I don't really seriously like, like try to do the things that I know can help me feel better all the time, like sleep and eat well and, and exercise. But I imagine like the, the, like this, the, to come back to like the silver lining of this is like, is there something, is there something good about the idea of like knowing that like if you track these things and if you put the work in to like make sure that you have these numbers dialed in or you know that you're eating the right things and and taking the right doses that the result is that you feel better like is that I, the silver I lining so. i mean i i think it's exactly that and knowing you know hey it'll affect me right now but also ideally for the next you know however many decades that I'm going to have a better quality of life versus I remember seeing people when I was in high school, they had had diabetes the same amount of time as me, but because they gave zero fucks, they were already losing feeling in their fingers. And so I'm figuring, you know, I want to make sure I can live the best life I can. And at the same time, if I'm tracking the macros or I'm, you know, taking care on the exercise front and making sure I get enough sleep, I'm going to just feel like a better, more energized human being and have a more rich life experience than the alternative diabetes or not. So to me, I'm like, I, I see it as a win-win plus, you know, it doesn't hurt if you know what you're doing, you can look pretty good at the same time. Yeah. So, right. <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of how I like to think about it. But I think, I think diabetes has probably made me more in line and more in tune with my health than I would have been if I didn't have it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, you know, it, it's a gift in its own really weird twisted way. Totally. totally. I mean, yeah. when I hear, when I heard you talking about being seven years old and counting carbs, I mean, honestly, until 2017, 2018, and I never, food was food. Food was food, didn't know what was in it, didn't know carbs, didn't know proteins, didn't know fats, never cared, never looked, uh, and, and that was that. And uh, in the last like five years or so, I've, I've, I've become like much more, much, more, um, much more curious about that stuff, but by that time I was 27. So, I mean, I, 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 it's hard to even, it's hard to imagine putting myself in the shoes of being, you know, under 10 years old and thinking about or being able to understand what, what makes up a food, you know, like the macro components of what makes up a food. I mean, like, that's not, that's hard. That's hard. I mean, like that was, that was like, that was confusing for me at 27 when I first started, started looking into it. So like, it's, it's a pretty wild, it's a pretty wild place to try and understand from the perspective of, uh, you know, from the perspective of a young, of a young kid, like it, like it does imbue you. And this is something that I think we, we get from a lot of our guests, like an understanding from a lot of our guests who live with, you know, what, whatever it is across the spectrum of, of like health and illness and disease is that their disease always brings with it some perspective or understanding or imbues them with a quality that gives them an edge in some way, Ooh. which is incredible. It's just mm -hmm. like an incredible thread through the people that we speak with. Mm -hmm. Ben, I'm, I'm curious um, about like thinking back to, again, like 
being a kid at seven years old and, and now your practice today. Um, I think a lot about uh, parents who have kids with diabetes who have like not gone through the process of living their lives, having to think about these numbers and care about these numbers. But then, you know, all of a sudden they have a child who's diagnosed with um, diabetes and now they're sort of responsible for, you know, at their at their early ages, like making sure that their kids are are eating these right ways, but also they're not in their kids' bodies, so they can't necessarily like feel what they're feeling. I imagine that it it can it would be a really stressful situation. I'm curious, like when somebody comes in to speak to you and they're struggling with some of those problems, like how do you help the parents deal with that? And it, it's super tough too, because like you said, if a kid's like three years old, they may not be able to, you know, verbalize, hey, my blood sugar's low. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of like, I feel like shit. And you have to kind of guess. And that's where I think a lot of the CGM technology has been helpful because it'll say, beep, 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 beep. Oh shit, let me go check on my kid. But I think with the parents, a lot of times, the biggest thing is just giving them, again, making it simple, trying to keep things as, you know, foundational as possible. Hey, here's the things to look out for in terms of what the symptoms could look like. You know, here's the types of things if they're like, hey, they really want this particular food. Maybe let's ask them a couple other questions to find out why, because then you get the kids that also get this, you know, messed up relationship with food where they just want to eat low snacks and like, you know, graham crackers and gummies and stuff because they taste good and it's fun. So they'll say, oh, I'm low and they're not actually low. So you have to, you know, look out for that kind of stuff too. I was manipulative. I'm not going to lie. When I was eight, (laughs) I used to, I used to run my blood sugar. Like I, one time I remember vividly, I ran it low just so I could have a better snack which is really <laughs> fucked up now that I think back about it. But again, you know, you're a kid. that's, what you, that's yeah. what you do. But it's a lot of, you know, it's a lot of teaching the parents, the science, teaching the parents, you know, the really, really simple stuff, but also then teaching them how to impart it on the kid. So that kid can get a little bit of independence, similar to when I was, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten. And, you know, obviously it's going to come in stages, but what really makes me cringe is when I meet a parent who has a kid who's in high school and the kid does not know, you know, anything. They don't know how to do shit and the parent does all of it. That's what scares me most for that kid because that kid at some point may go off to school or may leave the house and they're not going to know how to do anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a good point. Yeah. What, what would you say is the biggest thing that uh, diabetes has taken away from you? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, the biggest one I feel like as a, as a kid, the one that scarred me the most was a, a chunk of my baseball career because I was, I was, you know, in a little town in Wisconsin, all my buds were on this, you know, travel team. And I went to go try out for it, did all the winter workouts, was friends with the coach's kid. You know, he sees the roster after the tryout and he's like, oh, you're on the roster. We're going to have such a great summer. This is so dope. And then we go to Dairy Queen, we go get ice cream and my blood sugar is high as a fucking kite. Cause I was, you know, so much adrenaline was so excited, you know, wanted to perform, was nervous. And I couldn't have the ice cream because my blood sugar was like well over 400. Mm. And so at that point, me being, you know, the, oh, I'm going to self-advocate. My mom taught me how to do that. I told the, the, you know, the coach, oh, I can't eat this right now. My blood sugar is too high. And then the next day I got the phone call saying, oh, hey, you, you know, I'm, we're really sorry, but you didn't make this team. Oh, and man. it was from that incident. And I think that, you know, that stuck with me through middle school, through high school to the point where I stopped, you know, I feel like it robbed me of some of my childhood. If that's the biggest thing I say yeah. it took away because, you know, people start treating you differently. Oh, you didn't make this team. You must suck you know, and then that follows you into high school and people don't think you're as cool. And I started hiding it and just not telling anybody I would be, I'm lactose intolerant if I'm eating something different. I don't Mm -hmm. want to share this with anybody. Mm -hmm. And it took me years to finally get through the point where I'm like, I don't give a shit. If you don't like me, you don't like me. It's fine. But that was, I think the biggest thing is it definitely made me grow up faster, but I think it took away a bunch of potential, you know, childhood experiences and who knows what would have happened. Like, obviously there's no way of knowing, Oh, had I made that team, would I be playing MLB? Probably not, but you know, who knows what could have potentially happened if that had gone a little differently. Mm. So occasionally I think about it, I I'm fine with where I ended up now, but I think it took some of my childhood away. Mm. What would you say is the biggest thing that it's given you? I think the community has been amazing. Like the people I've gotten the chance to meet. I mean, even, you know, talking with y'all, I would have never gotten to talk with y'all if I didn't, you know, have this. So this is, you know, to me, that's dope. And there's so many cool people that I've gotten a chance to interact with and meet and become friends with. 
Um, I think I've become pretty good at mental math, which sounds really stupid, but it's really helpful in a pinch when you're like, <laughs> someone will be my, like my, I guess my now wife, it's weird to say, cause we just got married, but like, you know, Congrats. we'll be like, Oh, thank you. We'll be, she'll be like, Hey, what's this times this? I'm like, got it. And she'll like pull out her calculator. She's like, shit, you're spot on. I'm like, yeah, I know. Sorry. But you know, like that, <laughs> that's kind of cool. Um, but I, I really think the biggest thing is given is just the awareness of health. And then yeah. be that also that chip on my shoulder of like, I want to work my tail off and be the best version of me that I can so I can make the world better. And, you know, mm -hmm. I think that's, I think it's given a lot of good stuff in that regard. Mm -hmm. So that the resiliency, I think is the biggest thing. Cause it's like when I was 12 and I picked myself up, dusted myself off, said, fuck this, I'm just going to have to work twice as hard. Yeah. And I did. So cool. That's awesome. That's dude. rad, man. Well, Ben, thanks, dude. This has been uh, this has been a real eye opening and fun conversation. Uh, how can people find you and stay up to date with the work that you do? I know you do a lot of advocacy. So uh, please plug away. Absolutely. So on Instagram and on TikTok, I am at man of zeal. So M-A-N-O-F-T-Z-E-E-L. And then for our practice, what we do helping people with, you know, diabetes, have better blood sugars, eat amazing food yourdiabetesinsider.com would be the best place to go for that. And I do have a YouTube channel that's also, you know, Your Diabetes Insider. Cool. Sure. Thanks, dude. This has been a real treat. Yeah, man. Hell yeah. This has been amazing. I'm just, I'm grateful I got to talk with y'all and this is fun. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even Better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sickboy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.